Welcome to the Waymaker Fireside Chat Podcast, where our purpose is to grow your life and change the world. In this episode, we're sitting down with Unilever North America COO and EVP of Beauty and Personal Care, AC Eggleston Bracey. Lewis Carr is the founder of Waymaker, the Lewis Carr Internship Foundation, the Blueprint Men's Summit, president of media sales at BET Networks, and author of Dirty Little Secrets. A.C. Eggleston Bracey is a recognized businesswoman in the beauty industry who has worked diligently to popularize the Crown Act and propel the brand she has worked with like CoverGirl, Dove, and Unilever forward. Through her pioneering work in the industry, A.C. has garnered valuable insights pertaining to establishing vision that she will share with listeners. Let's get started. Hi, I'm Lewis Carr, founder of Waymaker and WaymakerJournal.com. And I have the great pleasure today to have as my guest, my very, very, very good friend, A.C. Eggleston Bracey, uh, who is the Executive Vice President, Chief Operating Officer of North America Beauty and Personal Care at the Behemoth Unilever. A.C., welcome to Waymaker. How are you? I'm great. Thank you, Lewis. Uh, it's great to have this conversation with you. Thank you for inviting me. I'm excited and, and nervous at the same time. So I'm going to tell our audience that AC is like a mentor to me. Uh, she has been a guide, a consultant, sometime a parent when I'm not behaving right, uh, to sort of keep me on the right track. And I don't know where I would be without her advice and wow her mentorship. So I want to make sure that our audience knows that she's the real deal because y'all know I don't let too many people mentor me. So when I say I got a mentor, they're the real deal. So AC, thank you for sort of joining us today. Happy to be here. When you say mentor, it goes both ways. <laughs> thank you. No, thank I you. the same about you, keeping me on the up and up, tried and true and challenging me to do things to take it up a notch. So I'm grateful for you and uh, happy to call you a friend. Thank you. So we're gonna start off with this question, AC. I hear a lot of young people say, you can't be what you can't see. How do you feel about that statement? Do you agree or partly agree? What do you think about that? I would say I fully agree. And I think it's how you see. And there are a few things I have to say about that. If you can't physically see it, you need to envision it for yourself. And when I um, grew up, my sport was gymnastics. And in gymnastics, if you're tumbling and you do a trick, if you wanna do that double back, the first thing you have to do is envision yourself doing it and that's seeing it. You put that in your head, you mark that visually, and then you take that trick and then you stick it. And so you can't be it if you can't see it. And the context that it's typically used is you can't hit that position if you don't see someone else that looks like you in that position. And I think that's also really critical because that's how the brain works. Our old brain, cognitive science, the way we learn is we wanna conserve energy. So we teach ourselves what's possible based on what we see. It's just how we learn to read. It's the way we learn to walk. It's the way we learn to talk. We mimic those around us and it's what we see. So if we see a white male as president over and over and over and over, we believe what it takes to be president is to be a white male. The same for doctors, 
The same for caregivers. If we see a female caregiver over and over and over, we think that's what a caregiver is. It is literally how our brain works and how our eyes see. So when I talk about diversity and normalizing um, beauty in a way that you see diverse beauty images or blacks in senior positions, it's you've got to see it. So your brain thinks it's possible. And that is both for, let's call it a person out of the majority like myself as a black woman or a person in the majority. They need to see us so they can envision a workplace and leadership if it's at the presidential executive branch level or in the workplace that they can envision something different. So in short, I fully agree that you can't be what you can't see. You ideally see it physically. And if you can't see it physically, you envision it for yourself, create that picture and make that mark and make that the picture that is training your brain to succeed with that image. So as you grew up on the uh, south side of Chicago, High Park, Chicago, did you see the journey that you've been on over the last 25, 30 years? Did you envision that? Did you see it? Did you know anybody who had done it? That is a resounding no. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, a resounding no, because I knew nothing about corporate America and I knew nothing about business. So I didn't even know to envision that path. Didn't even know it. What I did see was my mother as an inspirational role model. It was always someone like most of us as black women who worked that always overcame barriers and challenged herself to take on the next level and do things people considered impossible. So, you know, my mother, you know, passed the bar as a young mother of two. She was in law school with my brother and I. Um, she went to law school at University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana. My father actually stayed in Chicago while she was in law school and she raised two kids and she got her law degree. So I saw her at a young age, like doing what others considered was not possible. So I got to see that, but I couldn't. So I shouldn't say as quickly resounding no, but professionally no, but I had that as a role model. So when I thought about my future, I did some envisioning though. I remember, and this might sound a little superficial, but I think it is at least worth uh, an illustration of this putting something in your mind. I remember thinking when I grow up, I was very young, I want to live in a high rise apartment with a building with an elevator, that an apartment that the elevator opens up into the apartment. This was like, I don't know, I was probably 10 or something like that because of what society shows you. So I thought I wanted to be successful. Um, and that's what I saw for myself. And that today I live in an apartment with an elevator that opens up. So that's crazy. It's not like I set it as a goal, but that's how I pictured success in my life. That's how I thought it looked. And, and, and I say that superficial, that's nothing that I ever wrote on paper that I wanted. It's happenstance and I'm here in New York and that's the apartment I live in, but is it happenstance? I, no, you know, I didn't actively work that, but I envisioned success for myself. And so um, I just thought a different path. I would have never imagined, ever, ever imagined the path I'm on, but I knew that I wanted to do something that made a difference. I knew that. 
I also knew that I wanted to do something that surpassed what people thought black women could do. I knew that early on. I thought I wanted to be coming out of college an MD, PhD in biomedical engineering because I had read that there weren't any um, black women uh, MD, PhDs and I was a math geek. I loved math and I was looking for a practical way to use math and I liked people and all I knew was doctors help people. So I thought MD, PhD, I made this up as a dream for myself and I had no idea what an MD, PhD would do. But I knew that it was something that not a lot of people had done, that it could help people and I could break barriers doing it, right? So um, did I envision the career I have for myself? Resoundingly, no. Did I envision myself successful? Did I envision myself doing things others hadn't done? and helping people through that? Yes, just very different path than what I have ultimately taken on. So you went to Dartmouth, which is, you know, it's just a pretty decent school, all right? How did you decide that? What was your thinking in high school? What was your decision-making that? So I'm sure if you went to Dartmouth, you had other options. Yeah, that's a great question, Lewis. It's a really, uh, <laughs> complex answer, it's a complex story. You know, Chicago, Kenwood Academy, Hyde Park, you know, your hometown close mm -hmm. in proximity to. Right, University of Chicago, right there in your neighborhood. Right there, and I assumed that I would go to U of I, University of Illinois, Champaign-Urbana. That's where my parents went to school. And I had this fantasy of maybe doing something different than my, pa my parents. And I had learned about this college, Tulane University. I don't know how, but I thought Louisiana, that might be cool. And then going through school and taking some of the tests, PSATs, schools started writing. And um, that's where I learned about Ivy League schools. I knew nothing about them. I wasn't exposed. And I essentially applied to prove to them that I wouldn't get in. I did not think, I, I thought it was like a racket. Like they just want your application fee because I couldn't believe these schools would charge $50 at the time when I was applying, they apply. And I thought, ah, oh, yeah, they're writing you because they want your application fee. So it's a racket, but let's see, you know, I never want to turn down any opportunity. So I'll apply, but I'm going to prove to everyone that that's what this is, it's a racket. So I applied to Yale and MIT and I don't think I've, I've Stanford and Brown and Dartmouth and all these schools. And then I ended up getting into them. And it was so frightening when you know, I just assumed they were out of my reach when I ended up getting into these schools. And again, I mentioned that I wanted to study engineering. So when I got into MIT, so then I went and I visited the schools and it was even more intimidating. And I thought, oh my God, my life is going to end now. I have to go to this school. My this kid was fun. You know, I had a good time in school, right? And then I didn't see that when I visited. So I ended up choosing Dartmouth because at the time you would go through the list of colleges and look at US News and World Report. And of all those schools, it was a top 10, but it was probably number 10 on the list. So okay. I chose it. I never articulated this to anyone because I would never say I chose it because it's the lower of the schools, but internally I felt more confident 
that maybe I could do it because I was coming from Kinwood and I was, you know, wasn't, didn't know anything about these Ivy League schools, but I justified it because it was of a lot of the schools, it was a school where I could study liberal arts and get an engineering degree. So I ultimately have a bachelor of arts in engineering sciences. Um, if, if I had gone to Yale, I'd have a really, I would have had a bachelor of engineering, but at a liberal arts school. So what that means is I would have taken almost all science classes, all engineering classes, and having a bachelor of arts in engineering sciences, I have a balance, right? I did anthropology, sociology, literature along with engineering. And so that was my story, right? I'm going to Dartmouth because it was flexible, but really deep down, it's I felt that I had a better shot of being able to do it because it was lower on the top list. Now I was young and naive, those lists change every year. So that year was 10, one year was four. And you know what you learn when you get exposure, there's nothing to be intimidated by. I mean, you just don't know. I mean, you know, you have just as much capability, if not more, particularly common sense, <laughs> than people are, who are being groomed to go to those colleges. So you've just brought up an interesting point. And I'm going to ask you to give some advice to your 17, 18 year old self as you look back. Would you have made those choices any differently? And, and I'll tell you why I asked that. Through my internship program, I had a young lady who was working at, I think it was CNN at the time, uh, in the summer. And she came back one day and said, Mr. Carr, I am so intimidated because all of the other interns come from Ivy League schools. She had went to an HBCU. And I had to really just address it at that moment because I didn't want interns walking around thinking their background was sort of determined what their future was gonna be or how they could compete. So if you look back and you say at 17, 18, would I have done anything different? And what advice would I have needed in making these decisions? I wouldn't have done anything different. And one reason is I'm someone that never has, never has regrets. I really believe your path in life is meant to be. All these experiences and connections you make, you only have the life you have because of those choices. So I. I, I, you know, I rarely can think of places that I have regrets. And when I look at what going to Dartmouth opened up, not in the way that you might think that it's an Ivy League school and opened up being able to get into XYZ, it gave me a sense of understanding what the world outside of my world was like and help with my confidence. Because I could go into, you know, my systems engineering class and I could, you know, and I could get an A and I could talk to the professor about programming. I had no idea I could do that because I came from a background and environment. I went to Kenwood, it was majority black. I was comfortable being the majority. Now Kenwood was also had some diversity. So I did have classes that weren't always majority black, but what it did for my, um, I, I wanna say what it did for my confidence. It was more what it did for my exposure to see I'm not that different in the world and we're mm -hmm. good, you know? And so I think that was great for me to see I could compete with the best of them. And I don't think I would have known that then. 
Now, if I look at my kids who aren't growing up in Kenwood, I would choose an HBCU for them. So I don't think about an HBCU as less than. I think you have complementary experiences in your life. You have environments that cultivate who you are and to be in community with black people is an amazing thing. And we need that in our community. And I had that at Kenwood, right? So I got a different experience at Dartmouth. My daughter has more of that Dartmouth experience in her high school. And then because, you know, I lived in Switzerland for eight years, she had a completely different experience from age three to 11 or 12 when she lived in Switzerland. So her complimentary experience, in my opinion, could be an HBCU. So I don't think of an HBCU as a less than. I think of it as a community experience. It's an important complement to our life experience. So would not do anything different. And my advice to anyone is you got this, you got this. The same way I say envision that double back, just envision for yourself that you got this. And every time your brain has some concern, every time you hear not enough, Take that from sharing and put it aside and say, I got this and just keep, keep it moving. So let's, let's move on to talk about your professional career. You started it and you had a long career at the Procter and Gamble company in Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, you've probably, you are probably one of the most successful African-Americans that have ever worked in that particular company. Tell us, how did you survive and thrive in an environment that a whole lot of people who don't look like us don't thrive and survive? How did you do that? What was your mindset as you worked there and then you climbed the corporate ladder? Yeah, that, um, that's, you know, we could be here all day talking about that. <laughs> I think the first thing was I was fortunate to choose an organization that was at least a good culture fit. So that- uh, What do you mean by that? It could be valued. I mentioned I was an engineer. That means I was very analytical. And at that company, there are a lot of analytical people. So particularly in the area that I went in, which was brand management. So I was again, able to, approach things analytically, show the case and the data. And I was probably even more analytical than some of the people in the culture. Um, that's one area. And when I say culture fit, the other is uh, very performance oriented, results and performance oriented. Now let's be clear, bias gets in the way of performance all the time, <laughs> okay? But at least there's a culture that wanted to be performance driven. So it was a decent fit for kind of my, my analytical ability, my curiosity, my performance orientation. So the first thing, you know, I did was, you know, try to be excellent, get clear on the objectives of what I was asked to deliver and hit and exceed them all the time, <laughs> right? Um, the second thing I would say is, you know, I took advantage of opportunities. So I said yes more than I said no. So when new things are presented to me, I take them on. 
um, and that's advice I, you know, give people often is balancing the say yes and say no. The other thing I would say, my journey overall has been one of finding my voice, claiming my voice, and then using my voice for good. And a part of my success there was claiming my voice. And there was a time, I would say the first few years that I didn't. I had my head down and I was focused on performing. What do you want me to do? I'm gonna get it done and let me get it done independently. And then I had an aha moment that because I had my head down and I was keeping who I was to myself because it wasn't like everybody else, that I was uh, doing a couple things, letting everybody, fooling everyone to thinking I was like them when I wasn't. And two, perpetuating the lack of diversity in terms of thinking, <laughs> Mm -hmm. in terms of um, style that was in the organization. Even though I was analytical, I still had a, I wasn't like the cookie cutter, okay? So I made a choice to change that, change the hiding of it and share myself with the organization. When I say share myself, it's things like, you all are going to get your shoes shine, which is what used to happen back then because it was a lot of men. I'm going to get a manicure. It's when I cut off my perm, my bob and my little straight hair and my little glasses and my little beige suit I'd wear, I cut it off and wore an afro. I actually bought uh, a convertible. I remember buying this used red convertible Porsche. <laughs> I would never have bought that because it looked too flashy. So early on, I was trying to like, I was have my head down perform and I was like trying to fit the mold. And then I broke out of that when I realized what I was doing. It was almost like unconscious that I was doing that, Lewis. And when I realized that I was like, what? And how I realized at that moment, I was actually in this diversity training that was talking about women and women, senior women in organizations being more uh, masculine, perceived as being more masculine than their male counterparts, because you know, they're the minority in the organization. And so they had to enculturate to survive. And then I had this aha moment when I saw that in myself, but not from a male female perspective, but from a black female perspective. And so I started claiming my voice and sharing that. And it was like, opened up everything. And that sounds so weird because I didn't do it for me, but it allowed me like it was AC unleashed. <laughs> So I was just, you know, like saying what needed to be done and sharing my thinking and bringing others along. And that actually helped because it helped me get results, but it helped me become more known, I would say. And uh, it gave me bigger and bigger opportunities that I kept saying yes to. And did you get any blowback initially when you made that conscious change? I mean, because, you know, you're a woman and you're black. So, you know, that's sort of, depending on how you look at a double-edged sword, did you get any blowback? I'm sure I did, but in my memory of it, I won't remember that. <laughs> <laughs> I just, that, that's a part of it. Like, it's like, that's not what I focused on. I'm gonna, it was more, um, and I'd be remiss if I didn't say I also had some good luck because I ended up working for people um, that, I want to say embraced it. 
So when I started, the entry level was something called a brand assistant. And my first brand manager was a female. There weren't a lot of female brand managers. She had moved over from finance and she was an Indian woman. So okay. super smart, very analytical. Again, I'm very analytical. Sarah Matthews, I remember her name. So I was cultivated there. And when I think about it, like I said, she's not to remember. I do remember one of my brand managers ended up being another woman. I was lucky. She, you know, she was a little taken aback, let's say. <laughs> and there was some luck that she ended up rotating. And, you know, I had enough of a network that anything that she could say that would impact me, there were others to have different things to say too. So that was more balanced. And the luck was she ended up rotating and taking on another job, right? So there was some luck in it and just, you know, I felt called to do me, not because I wanted the freedom to do me, which is what a lot of people say. I wanna be myself, it wasn't that. It was because I wanted to shift the organization and create space so other people could be them. That's what made me do it. And I got to tell you, Lewis, when you said was there backlash, it was more uncomfortable for me because my first thing is, I don't want these people to know who I am. They don't need to know. <laughs> That's my business, <laughs> their business. You know what I'm saying? That's not, they don't need to know. But I forced myself into this is why I'm cutting my hair, I'm getting my manicures, laughing in my office running around like being lighter and not like that corporate suit like everybody else was. But what I got out of that was like this amazing freedom. I got a gift out of it, but that's not why I did. Wow. And so because of that, back to the backlash, I said, choose not to remember that. I don't know because I wasn't focused on it. I was focused on what I felt I had to do to make the impact in the organization. But I got benefit out of that and the organization got benefit because my performance was better. I wasn't trying to fence anyone's mold. I was using my natural instincts about human behavior and not just using the data like I used to do. The data says, I would say, that says this, but I think this. So you guys, we need to blah, 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 blah. Right? Because historically we suppress that, but that's a superpower for us, right? We have good intuition in general as, um, as a black community, right? Yeah. So, so while you were there, you, you get this tremendous opportunity to live in Switzerland, which you've mentioned earlier. Uh, and, and I can tell you when it happened, I was like, I was, I was kind of jealous of you. I'm like, wow, because I thought you were going to go and come right back, you know, spend like 24 months, 36 months, because that's sort of the, the average sort of thing that in corporate America, you go over there, spend your time, then you come back home. But you spent a long time over there. What did you learn about yourself why you lived in this other country. Ooh, I loved it. Let me tell you, first, I did go a bit kicking and screaming. <laughs> I thought, why would I want to go to Switzerland? Again, it's back to our view, say yes. Back to say yes. Why would I want to go to Switzerland? Who would want to live anywhere except for America? Why was I thinking that? What was wrong with right, that? Right, right. Exposure. And so in having the opportunity and working through and thinking where well, there's benefits to this, right? And when I went over there, I had, Benoit was in my belly. So I was really scared. I remember having to tell my parents, Louis, that um, I was going to Switzerland and I was pregnant. And I put on a smile and inside I was holding back tears because I was like, how am I gonna do this? Go to another country, speaking another language and have a baby another baby and I already got one baby. I already got a big job. I'm gonna do all this. So, um, but it was amazing. Oh my God, it was a game changer. 
And it's because of what you asked, what did I learn? It is so amazing to have the opportunity to see your culture from the outside and not be a part of it. It's like air. You take it for granted until it's not there. When the air's not there, you're like, I can't breathe. But when you're breathing, it's there and it's around you. Culture is like that. So I got to see how our country works from the outside. And there's so many things that we take for granted that the country does that don't have to be the way they are. <laughs> I got to see a country that really does care about greenhouse gas emission. They care about the environment. I got to see what it's like to care about your food quality and not to just care about capitalism, even though the food costs more. I got to see what it's like to have white privilege. Can you imagine that? And that, you know, because um, no right or wrong, not giving it a value judgment outside of the US when you're recognized as American, it's almost assumed white privilege. And so my husband could catch taxis, no problem. <laughs> that privilege was not extended to all people of color, just let me be clear. And I also got a sense of community with a broader diaspora of people of color. That was incredible. And I got to show my children the world. So my kids have a sense of who they are in the world, not <laughs> who they are as a New Yorker or a Chicagoan or as an American. Wow. It was wow. amazing to see how a society can work differently, to see what white privilege is like. <laughs> it's like, wow, it's like triple exhale. It's a whole nother thing you don't worry about. And then, you know, you come back to America and you can see the loss of <laughs> white privilege too. Right, right. It was really, it was really great. So, so you go there, you come back, and then you get this through some transactions this amazing opportunity to run Cody and Ed Cody, you, you, you kind of, I don't know if you brought it with you, you get CoverGirl, all right? It's two of the biggest brands in the world, all right? Tell us about that experience. Um, so there's two things now, I'll tell you about CoverGirl. CoverGirl, and again, we worked so closely together when I was working on CoverGirl Lewis and we had a great time together. Yeah. CoverGirl was, another aha moment where I realized the work we do in our industry really matters because having the opportunity to um, bring Queen Latifah to CoverGirl and seeing the impact that had not just on black women, but all women to see, just to see a beauty brand embrace real women, you know, who at the time um, there weren't a lot of real women. <laughs> as uh, faces and spokespeople, and certainly not um, women like the queen who are powerful, um, black women, multi-talented, not stick figures, but full figure. And then seeing, I remember going to a focus group at, I think I was in Idaho or maybe it was Iowa, talking about our talent. And I was talking about the range of cover girls, many of whom were not queen. And um, they said, I want to talk about the queen. And I was in Idaho, we're not black women in this focus group. I want to talk about the queen. I love her story and who she is. And it was like, wow, this really matters. You know, it really matters. It shapes images. And that, you know, Queen Latifah was the first. And we went on to, to partner with so many other women who are more like real women that you would 
high five when you see them walking down the street instead of asking for their autograph. And that's who Queen Latifah was and Drew Barrymore and Ellen DeGeneres and Janelle Monet and Rihanna. It was all early, early, early days when Rihanna was doing Umbrella. Um, and, you know, I was proud and privileged to have the opportunity to do that. And I look back today, you know, it's like, do you rock your cover girl. That was amazing. That solidified you in the industry as a visionary. I mean, it had never been done before. Uh, it had to be a real big risk, roll of dice, because you're doing something so far from the norm. Did it feel like a lot of stress and pressure on you? Or no. were you just like, I know this is right? It didn't feel like that at all. It's, you know, it was um, so obvious that blonde hair, blue eyes, representing the brand at the time was not aspirational to all of America. So the opportunity to partner with Queen and we started with one commercial. So it was like, we did a commercial and my boss was like, and probably shouldn't, my boss was like, you know, you know, um, we had, let me see, I'm trying to find the road. We had a group of cover girls and then we had people that we used in commercials. So I was like, you know, so I didn't have to ask for a lot of permission. I'm like, oh, we're, you know, we're doing a commercial. And then there was huge reception to it. And I was like, oh, Queen's our cover girl. So I didn't have to like, what's the risk? We're doing a commercial. Okay. And Queen and Faith Hill in a commercial together. And she was like, hey, cover girl Faith. And Faith's like, hey, cover girl Queen, my smoothers, whatever it was. So I didn't think, I knew it needed to be done and the opportunity was there, but I got everybody else comfortable by, I wanna say doing it a step at a time, but it was more just doing it because I didn't have to ask for permission because I wasn't making this big statement. I was putting someone in a commercial and then just declaring she was a cover girl. And so then we used her all the, you know, we worked together more than just one commercial. It wasn't until that moment, I said, when I was in Idaho or Iowa, wherever I was, one of the states with the eye, that I realized how impactful it was. I knew it mattered for me. I knew it would matter for some, you know, a lot of us in our community, but to see how it could shape the world, that's what gave me the, the you know, the guspa to keep, to keep going. And it was more like, um, I didn't feel like I was brave. I felt more like I was committed. Like what next, what next? Because I'm always someone trying to think about what are we gonna do next? Right. What's next, what's next? So I was more motivated by what's next. And that's where we ended up with the whole roster, right? Of cover girls. So we needed all of our faces diverse. We couldn't just have the queen. We needed all of our roster. Right. So I was more motivated by that. And only sometimes would I run into obstacles. And how I manage those obstacles is with, again, either minimizing it, like, She's just, you know, it's just one commercial or with a lot of data, a lot of data and a lot of advocates. So it wasn't just me getting lots of other people bought in to what it is we needed to do. So that's the first bit on CoverGirl and that was great. And then on Cody, you know, the experience of Cody, I was the only American on a leadership team of about 12 or 13 particularly on the commercial side, there was one American who worked for the company in R&D um, who was a, was a white guy. So that was a real experience. Luckily, I had worked in Switzerland for eight years. So I was, it, that wasn't 
an entirely new experience, but learning how to lead at that level when you are different in many ways, <laughs> cultural background, gender, and then there are only two women in this team of 14. So certainly not a person wow. of color. So that was a, the biggest experience there was how to lead in that kind of environment and the microaggressions. And that's probably the time where I experienced the most overt <laughs> <laughs> bias, racism, and how to manage through that. And um, it was great because it was like, that's your problem, not mine, excuse me. I mean, it was just a wonderful affirming time to see I can handle this madness. Obviously we always deal with microaggressions and some over people always think I'm not the boss, right? Deal with mm -hmm. that all the time. They always assume I was, you know, running the business and they think I'm the intern. <laughs> <laughs> all the time you know that's kind of stuff happens and I just smile and then I wait then they see that I'm presenting and I watch them turn red and so I take joy in that and so it's not a big deal but in this case I really learned how to lead and influence being different and learning that any issues they had were their issues and not mine and watch how watch the support that I got from others and it helped affirm who I was and, and during this whole journey of yours, you, you have been named one of the most powerful, influential women in beauty and personal care. When those accolades were laid upon you, did you feel any sort of responsibility having that type of influence and power as a Black woman? You know, I always feel responsibility. And it's outside of any kind of you know, accolade or title. I mean, I feel like it's up to us that have the access and privilege to lead businesses, to make an impact for people. And so I just um, always feel that, separate from any kind of title. What more can I do? What more can I do? What more can I do to serve Black people in terms of Black consumers to make sure our needs are met and served? And by the way, that is good for business. Because, you know, people of color in America are, the, are nearly the majority. 40% of America are people of color. One of two babies born are babies of color. So bringing to a corporation and organization ability and understanding to serve our needs helps the business. And because I have unique insight from my experience and how to do that, I'm not the only person that can, but I can help bring the organization along. In that regard, you know, I want to take advantage of that. So I always feel that obligation and not obligation because I don't believe in obligation. I always feel uh, called to do that. It's a better way to say that. And, and that is a part of my mission. And I also feel um, committed to helping others in the organization succeed and excel. So uh, outside of titles, more the privilege I have to have access and lead this businesses, I feel committed <laughs> to doing all that I can. So, so now you're at Unilever and you're one of the top executives there and you're, you're running a, a billions of dollar business and uh, all of a sudden I hear this thing called the Crown Act. And I'm like, the Crown Act? Tell us about the Crown Act and why you? So I've uh, joined Unilever in 2018, and I chose Unilever 
after leaving Cody and um, taking some time off to really spend more time with my kids and transitioning them into back to America <laughs> and into New York, I chose Unilever for a number of reasons, but primarily because of the purpose of the company, which the company really believes the purpose of business is to do good. And I was always a corporate cynic. Even though I spent 25 years and retired from P&G, I was never one that waved the corporate bandwagon. I was never Mrs. P&G. I was always committed to my brand. So super passionate about CoverGirl or in creating Febreze, whatever brand I was doing, but I was never that corporate person because I thought it's for profit, it's a company. But, and I, was skeptical that any company really believed the purpose of business was to do good because the purpose of business is to turn a profit. And so before joining, I was like, this can't be for real. And I met leader after leader, after leader, after leader who was committed to that. And so I joined um, and that's what I've done since I've been there is to figure out how to use our brands for good in the world. And the Crown Act is a part of that. So in my $5 billion portfolio and two dozen brands, the biggest brand is Dove. And Dove, I would say Dove's life's work is for beauty inclusivity. Its mission and intention has been there for decades. Its execution hasn't always been right, but its mission and intention has been there. And so I had the opportunity in coming in to figure out how we could drive more beauty inclusivity for black Americans. And in that, um, you know, me as a black woman, I, I can personally relate to the disconnect between what society says is beautiful and how what we believe beauty is in our community. And we talk to women over and over. And again, consistent with my experience and my friends' experiences, we heard the same thing. One, there's a thing with my hair that early on the world told me that I wasn't beautiful because my hair was potentially too kinky. You know, my features are not embraced as a beauty standard. If it is complexion, not always complexion, if it's uh, full figure features, nose, lips, et cetera, and you would hear deep pain that started from early on. And so in that, the same time we were seeing hairs not acceptable, my beauty features aren't acceptable. There were all these horrible stories that were getting publicized in the media about people being turned away from school and employment because of their hair. There was Chastity Jones, a call center worker in Florida, case to the Supreme Court. They said, if you don't change your locks, we're not giving you this job. There was Andrew Johnson, who's a wrestler in New Jersey. We saw him have to choose between forfeiting this championship match or cut his locks. And we watched his dignity erode as he cut his locks so that he can compete. There was a young Faith Finity who was a sixth grader in Louisiana, all dressed up the first day of school in her beautiful braids. And they said, go home or we're gonna expel you for your braids because we changed the grooming policy. So all of this, listening to black women in stories and then seeing these stories and what we learned it was perfectly legal for um, schools and workplaces to do this. There was nothing that said that this was discrimination. And so decided to take action. Um, through the brand and platform of Dove. So I went to talk to an organization called the National Organization of Black Elected Officials in uh, November, December of 2018 and made them aware of this issue. These were like state legislative officials, state senators and Congress people, and many weren't aware. Who knows that that nonsense is legal? 
and, and made a call to action and said, you know, look at us. If you look in the audience, majority had textured hair, braids, locks, and, and said, let's make a change. And there was a Senator in the room, Senator Holly Mitchell, who looked into it and in February said, I'll work with you Dove to make the change. So on behalf of Dove in my position, we created the Crown Coalition. Crown stands for creating a respectful and open world for natural hair. The Crown Coalition is Dove as a co-founder with the National Urban League, Color of Change and the Western Center on Law and Poverty because we had Senator Holly Mitchell from California who stepped up and our purpose is to champion the Crown Act. And the Crown Act makes it illegal to discriminate us against to discriminate against us because of our textured hairstyles and it makes the fair employment and housing act that already exists broaden to protect hair as a protected trait and so now we have 11 states that have passed the crown act i'm super proud to say it started with california july 3rd 2019 and uh, most recently um you know, we have 11 states passed, uh, either Crown Act or Crown Act inspired states, includes, including the newest, which is Louisiana. So, you know, we have, nine, we have 39 more states to go and federal legislation and the Crown Act. It's all about helping the next generation not have to deal with this nonsense of saying you can't come to school because you got braids. That's amazing. Congratulations on that. So, Waymaker. I personally believe that almost every single person that has been successful in their life, they had waymakers. Uh, I've counted my own and I've had 19 okay. people who intentionally, when I didn't even know I needed things, stepped up and gave me whether it was advice or gave me opportunities or mentored me. And as I say, AC, I can pay back the interest, but I can never pay the principal because the principal is way too big. Who were some of the waymakers in your life? Yeah, I have so many, um, and I'll have to count them up at um, at some point. But as I work back, there's so many. There's so many, but there's one woman in particular that made a huge difference for me, and her name was Susan Arnold, and she was. Um, um, one of my managers, she was a general manager, it was a marketing director when I worked for Procter Gamble, who um, when she left, when I was working in one area of the business, which was more related to soap and household products, who went to beauty, that I said, if you need anyone in beauty, um, you know, let me know, look me up. She was always like my quiet guardian angel. She kept her eye on me when she had moved to beauty when I was still working in soap. She brought me over to beauty, away from soap, and she's the one that gave me the job on CoverGirl. <laughs> and, you know, with a job I had before then, I was running some other business. She said, AC, you don't need to do that anymore. Here are the two other jobs I want you to consider. CoverGirl or this other bigger job. And then when I went to CoverGirl, she said, AC, don't get too comfortable because I want you to be one of my general managers one day. So moving out of marketing and into general manager. And so she was truly the epitome. You call it a way maker in, in corporate America, I'll say call it a sponsor, an advocate and a sponsor that just believed in me and made things happen for me. And she was pivotal, pivotal. Would I be a general manager today if it weren't for Susan Arnold? I don't know, I don't know because did I fit the bill and the stereotype or, or the past 
profile of a general manager look like? No. And I was the first and only that I know black woman general manager at, at PNG. I think now they might have more, but certainly, you know, at the time. And that was all because of Susan. And then I can just think of dozens of others that, you know, paved the way for me, you know, at that company, but also outside of the company, just net people that just were like, I would say godmothers. I would call probably Susan more godmother than even a guardian angel or sponsor. She was always there. They just were committed, watched out, watched my back, make things happen. You know, people like yourself, Lewis. I mean, it takes a whole crew of people that just kind of steer you in the right direction, network you to opportunities. But um, the one that stands out for me is Susan Arno. Well, AC, thank you so much for this. Uh, I, I told him you were a rock star before I did this. I said, you know, I'm getting ready to interview a rock star tonight. And clearly your journey, your story, uh, and your energy and motivation behind everything that you say and do is you're one of the best executives in the world, not just in this country. And uh, I salute you. I thank you so much. And for people who want to follow you or get in touch with you, how can they do that? Um, through LinkedIn, you know, look me up, AC Eggleston Bracy on LinkedIn or Instagram, EE Bracy. Um, I would love that. And just thank you, Lewis, for all that you do. I mean, this Waymaker platform is incredibly inspiring and it's one of many things that you do for the next generation and paying it forward. So it's my honor and privilege to be here with you and just thank you for the opportunity and the difference you continue. Thank you so much for listening to this conversation between Lewis Carr and AC Eggleston Bracey. What did you enjoy about this episode? Let us know on our social media at Waymaker Culture. Don't forget to claim your first six months of the Waymaker Journal free at waymakerjournal.com. And be sure to enter the Waymaker giveaway by going to waymakercontest.com. Subscribe to the Waymaker Fireside Chat podcast to get notifications each time we release an episode. 